Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times still, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Keith Frost. Keith is the Director of Operations at Arkiva, the UK's leading communications infrastructure provider. Keith, very warm welcome to you and thanks ever so much for joining us on the programme on this fine day. Uh, hi Scott, pleasure to join you and uh, and uh, be part of this podcast. Excellent. Now the purpose of this uh, discussion Keith is to establish really your take on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is if we take that word leader just in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? So I think leadership for me is all about um, behaviours to some extent. Um, um, and how um, you apply those those behaviours to to bring together a team, um, which a team normally consists of a group of individuals, but bring those individuals together for a common common goal. And clearly, in 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 in, in those behaviours that we're looking for, um, very much along the lines of you know somebody that's uh, leading by example, encouraging thinking amongst the the, the team members. And really applies, I guess, sort of reward and, and recognition as well as a sense of discipline across the, the team to try and sort of strive towards that, 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 that high performance. And I guess all the time you're trying to push the boundaries of what's achieved, trying to really, uh, as a leader, um, encourage that confidence of the, of the team and ensure that you're paying to each individual's strengths um, and overcoming any sort of weaknesses that, that certain team members may, may have. Incredibly important points that you mentioned there, Keith, particularly around the need for people management within leadership, especially in the uh, the business world, because it's about them just as much as it's about you as a leader, isn't it? It's about getting the best out of them, allowing them to get the best out of you, but also sort of invigorating them with a form of confidence to be able to take on their own leadership, go beyond um, their comfort zones and push the boundaries a little bit, because that's vital in the way that they're going to develop, isn't it? Uh, that's right. I mean, you've got to you've got to um, balance the time that you spend um, on that team goal, uh, on on setting that clear vision uh, and an objective that you're trying to achieve as a team, but balancing that with time with each of the individual members to understand well what what are their personal goals, what are they trying to achieve, uh, helping them understand their strengths, but also their 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 their, their, their weaknesses, so that. When they come back as the team, it's a, a much stronger, stronger, uh, 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 stronger performance at the end of the day, and you can really strive for we'll be stretching to our team team goals. And if we think about um, your personal leadership style, Keith, in the context of Arkiva, how would you describe that? Um, so, so my my style is very, very collaborative. I think. I think um, I try and uh, bring sort of emotional intelligence to, to sort of how I lead lead the teams and, and, and the groupings um, to, to achieve something. And I think emotional intelligence is all about you know, it's the ability to understand those complex ideas but adapt effectively to the environment and learn from, from experience. And I think that um, that whole sort of emotional piece is around you know, understanding the team you know, understanding what their responses and organising those sense of sense of responses to optimise how the, the 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 individuals come together to address the challenge. So very much imply emotional intelligence to my to, to, to my lead my leadership style, 
and 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 really try and lead by example, as I mentioned before, in terms of leading behaviour. It's very much leading by by example uh, and encouraging that thinking and constantly learning, constantly developing uh, my own leadership capability. It's a really important point that you mentioned there about constantly learning and developing because we're never really a finished product, even when we're in a leadership position, are we? It's still very much a process of trying new things, learning from the setbacks that we do have and embracing those as a learning experience. I think there's some merit in um, that message, isn't there? Not to necessarily be phased by failure, but be willing to learn from it. Yeah, no, completely, completely agree. You know, whilst you want to be successful 100% of the time, um, it's not always the case, and 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 you do need to learn from that that past experience, but not not become overly dependent on it. Um, there's there's no substitute for uh, that creative thinking thinking differently. I think it was Steve Jobs who said that you know you can you can connect the dots in the past um, and see what's been achieved in the past, but you've got to have some faith that those dots in the future will come together and align how you want them to align. So whilst experience is, is, is really, really good for learning, um, you can't be completely dictated. You've got to be creative uh, and continue to innovate, really, in, in how you move forward and overcome some of the goals ahead. I think that's um, completely right, uh, Keith, in what you're saying there. And I'm aware as well that in terms of your background, you, of course, were once part of the uh, the Royal Engineers within Her Majesty's Forces. Were there any elements of leadership that you've been able to take from that more military career and apply to the business world as you've sort of developed through your career? Um, yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, you know, I guess the, the, the military journey is all about taking somebody um, who's got you know, that leadership potential. They do look for leadership potential. And that, that's you know, somebody with you know, really strong energy levels and that ability to, to adapt to a changing environment. Uh, and you, know, you really understand, the, the, you would be clear about the factors that drive when you're assessing that leadership potential, understanding the factors, I guess, that, 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 that drive the individual as the leader, but also how they would apply those to drive drive the team and they've got to have fairly good sort of social skills so that was sort of picked up and and that uh potential was developed within within sanders and i found that really really useful throughout not just my military career but also as i've moved um into into um my, my civilian civilian career um and at the moment i'm dealing with obviously like a lot of businesses um or all businesses um with the coronavirus uh, pandemic and um, I found that uh, uh, those experiences, that approach, um, really, really useful. And back to the, the understanding the basics, understanding what you're trying to achieve, and, and, and bringing people together to achieve that, that common common goal. And I think we have you know, certainly been managing very, very well the coronavirus uh, um, outbreak as, um, as, as, as the, uh, the weeks have gone past within our season. And of course, um, you mentioned two words uh, there as well that they look for uh, within uh, Sandhurst, adaptability and also being able to adjust to changing environments. They're both hugely important within business leadership, of course, um, in the context of the here and now with COVID-19, as you've uh, mentioned there. Um, but also what I'm interested to know, Keith, is how have the team of Ar- at Arkiva generally responded to the uh, the pandemic thus far? Because we've heard some great stories, haven't we, of people who've really gone above and beyond during this period to keep things ticking over, however they've had to adapt their working life. Um, and I imagine that's probably been uh, the case for yourselves as well. Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, you know, 
I think we've been uh, saying within Arkiva, we, we, we spend a lot of time looking at business um, continuity as a result of providing mission critical networks and whether that's networks to um, to uh, the, the, the um, oil, gas, electricity industry to rely on the telematics that come back or, um, or broadcast um, and the uh, uh, distribution of key information and news from, from, from government of what's going on through the, the TV signals and, uh, and radio and radio listening. So business continuity has always been a really, really, really important part of, of what Arkiva does. Um, but having said that, we hadn't necessarily planned for, for a pandemic and, and the, the um, per se as a specific um, um, specific uh, threat. Um, but we mobilized uh, quickly. We spent um, a, a sort of a, a Saturday, myself and my ops director spent a Saturday afternoon working through, well, what are we trying to achieve? What do we need to protect um, to keep the, the networks on? Uh, and, and what's, you know, pulling together what the overall goal really was, the business outcome we were seeking to, to, to achieve. And from that, when the wider team came in on the, uh, the, the the following Monday, we were able to start mobilizing very, very, very quickly to leverage the tools and the systems we'd already invested in to uh, make sure that uh, we were able to deal with the, uh, that, uh, the pandemic. So I think in all leadership, it's about really having that common vision, that common goal of what, what we're trying to achieve. And I think for Arkiva, first and foremost, and we made it really clear to, to, to all our colleagues within the organization that safety was the number one priority, uh, their safety and that of um, their family. So we looked at uh, ensuring that uh, how we progressed activity Within within the workplace, recognise that first first and foremost, and that is still as important to us now um, as it is as we start to change the ways of uh, of working for, for for more longevity within the pandemic. Mm. And if we do think about the uh, the future um, as well, Keith, before we do wrap things up um, on the uh, the program today, do give me some idea of what you envision the next twelve months holding for yourself and for Arkiva, and what you hope to achieve as we move through this pandemic, hopefully out of the other side of it as well, and begin to really look to the future. Okay, so 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 really close to home. I think we've got a lot to do to work out you know, how how we adapt. As, um, as as a team um, with the new ways of working, the new in the new workplaces, because for the for the short term, you know, it's not going to be the same as it used to be. There's not necessarily a rollback plan for business as usual. There will be changes, uh, and then more wider, it's continuing to drive forward on that uh, growth agenda. I don't think anything's really changed. Um, clearly, the economy we're looking at to see how and what what the implications are of of that in terms of our normal operation. But in terms of strategic growth, you know, we, we just want to continue to, 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 to look for opportunities that, that, that leverage our assets and our capabilities for service provision and providing these mission-critical networks. Uh, and we think a big growth area in that space is data communications. As, as more and more devices and systems become connected, we're producing more and more data, and that data is giving better in, insights to, 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 to organizations uh, and, and their businesses. Um, and the continuation really to invest in building our platform to broadcast, um, you know, getting the TV, television signals over whichever platform or format it is to the, to the, to the viewers and the radio to the listeners. So we will continue to focus on those, those things as well. 
Mm, it certainly seems like there's um, a great deal of uh, planning going into the uh, the future, uh, Keith. And from a listener's perspective, given how informative it's been um, having you on the air with us today, I think it would be great just to um, actually catch up in the uh, the next year at some point once we start to understand what this new normal is going to look like. And we can um, also um, just have a look at uh, how um, Arkiva is uh, getting on um, in that regard for sure. I think that would be fantastic. No problem at all. We'd love to come back and reflect on, uh, on, on the next 12 months that, uh, that are ahead of us. I think it would be um, really um, informative, uh, not just for myself, but also for the listeners tuning into this, uh, Keith. And as for today, I have to say, um, I've really enjoyed um, having you on the programme. It's been a really, really insightful experience speaking with you. And thank you again ever so much for your time. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime, for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. That was Keith Frost, Director of Operations at Arkiva. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is a former England cricketer and is currently the Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. During his playing days, Strauss became one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. And he also became the England captain with the second highest number of test victories under his belt in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew, and that's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood, for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname, Ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose 
what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as Hold a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary yeah. thing. Well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.